of his warning this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. This is uh, our study on Sunday mornings to work through Hebrews. We, we spent several years in Luke and now we're in Hebrews. We've come to chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1001. This book is, it, it relays to us the words of a pastor to his, his beloved flock, some of whom, although they've professed faith in Christ, are beginning to wander away from the gospel. And this pastor has two goals in this letter. One is to show to their eyes, to hold before their eyes the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and his salvation. But the second is to warn them against wandering away or against drifting away from this salvation. And those two things are the same coin, just different sides. If we see the glory of Christ, if we've really seen it, then this world becomes strangely dim to us and we'll never wander. And conversely, if we are wandering, if we are drifting away, then the glory of Christ will not hold our attention. Listen now to God's word, Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was about 18 years old, several friends and I were going out in the Beaufort River in our boat. And we were launching at Brickyard Landing. And I launched the boat and, and the weather was, the, the, the current was pretty calm. It was high tide. And so I asked one of my friends to hold on to the boat while I pulled the truck up to the landing and parked it. And when I got back, my, my two friends were still standing there talking to each other and the boat was about 100 yards away. And they weren't paying attention and so it drifted. And those of us who are familiar with the waters around here know how subtly, almost imperceptibly, drifting can happen. Uh, perhaps you've had the experience of throwing out an anchor and you thought that the anchor grabbed. But suddenly you look up and you're not where you thought you were. I think that's the image that the pastor has in mind here in verse 1. As he tells his flock, pay careful attention to what you've heard lest you drift from it. We need to be clear on this. We need to understand this throughout the book of Hebrews. This church really isn't a church that was in danger of renouncing the gospel or rejecting Jesus outright. The, the danger they were in was that they would grow complacent 
and that they would subtly drift away from the faith as it's been delivered to them. And that's why verse 1 starts with such a powerful warning, therefore pay much more careful attention to what you've heard. Now, of course, in, in Scripture, hearing doesn't just mean that the sound waves have made their way to your eardrums. Hearing means that the message has made its way to our heart. We hear with our heart in the Christian context. And the way we know that we've really heard the message is that it has come to our hearts and it has changed and transformed our hearts and produced in our hearts a fire for a life of faith and love and obedience to Christ. Drifting, then, is what happens when we've heard the message, but it hasn't transformed us. We've heard it with our ears. We hear those excellencies of Christ that were proclaimed throughout Hebrews chapter 1, and we leave unchanged. Drifting is not so much a lack of head knowledge of the truth, but it's a lack of heart engagement with the truth. And so as we look at this text, I want you to see three things here. I want you to see first a great salvation. And second, we'll see a drift into condemnation. And third, we're going to look at a firm foundation. So great salvation, drift into condemnation, and then a firm foundation. So the first thing I want you to see is our great salvation. Verse 1 starts, therefore. Well, what's it there for? He's going back. He's looking back into chapter 1. Of course, those chapter divisions were added later. And so he's saying, in light of everything that I've told you in these last 14 verses, here's what you're to do. Pay careful attention to what God has spoken. If you go all the way back to verse 1 in Hebrews 1, we're told God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but then verse 2, in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. And so now he's saying, you need to listen up because God has spoken to you. You know, you and I live in a world that is drowning in a sea of news and advertisements. And, and so whether it's your social network news feed or the constant barrage of commercials, or a television preacher that you see, or, or a political campaign ad, somebody is always trying to deliver a message to you. And of course, we've decided today for some reason that celebrities and athletes are the people that we ought to listen to when they come to deliver a message. But the, the, the problem, the trouble for us today is that we have to learn to navigate that sea of news and advertisements and figure out Who do I pay attention to? What do I pay attention to? Well, this pastor is making a comparison here in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, you know, if, if the message delivered by the angels was trustworthy, and he'll give us evidence in a moment that it was trustworthy, then, then the message delivered by Christ is more trustworthy. Why? Because Christ is superior to the angels, and therefore Christ's message must be superior to the message that the angels brought. Now, we have to ask the question, what message did the angels bring? Well, here we use that great Reformation principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. So look with me at Acts chapter 7. 
This is the stoning of Stephen, really the first Christian martyr. Before Stephen was stoned to death, he had opportunity to speak to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, and it's fascinating what he says to him. He just recounts the whole story of Scripture and explains how it all points to Christ. But I want you to see what he says in verse, starting in verse 51. He begins, you stiff-necked people. By the way, if you're trying to get yourself out of trouble, the best way to begin is not you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, you do not hear what is preached to you. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, it's really fascinating because if you go back to the giving of the law in the Old Testament in in Exodus 20, we're told, uh, actually in Deuteronomy 32, we were told that the angels were there, but we're not told until Acts that the angels helped to deliver the law. And lest we think this is just a one-time thing, flip over to Galatians. Galatians starting, uh, 3, starting at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In other words, the angels helped to deliver the law, the moral law of God. So when Hebrews is talking about the message of the angels, it is talking about the law. And it's saying here, what Christ came to bring in the gospel is superior to the law. Now, he's not denigrating the importance of the moral law. He's not saying the law wasn't good. What he's saying is the gospel is better. Because the law, as true as it is and as good as it is, it can't save us. You and I, if we had a million lifetimes, could not keep the law well enough to save ourselves. So we might ask, well, what good is the law? What good was giving the law? Look over at Romans 7 for a moment. Romans 7, verse 7 The Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? In other words, is the law a bad thing? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In other words, Paul's saying here, what the law does is it shows us that we can't save ourselves. He goes on to say, if it wasn't for covetousness, if the law didn't indict my covetousness, I would not have known I was a sinner in need of a Savior. So the law shows us our need of the gospel. It, it, it brings us to Christ because when we look at the law with sober eyes, we realize we cannot save ourselves. Well, why is he saying this to them? Because remember, this flock is thinking about, you know, we love Jesus, but let's take Jesus back into the old covenant. We miss the temple. We miss the people. We miss being an accepted part of society rather than a fringe, marginal group, a uh, marginal sect. And this pastor is saying to his flock, why in the world would you go back to the law when you have such a great salvation? 
I want you to imagine you're speaking with someone and they hear that verse. And they say, I don't know anything about Christianity. What is so great about your salvation? Now, I hope that you could bend their ear for the rest of the day telling them what is great. In fact, I would encourage you to do that this afternoon. Write out what is really great about our salvation. I enjoyed this exercise this week of doing just that. Let me name for you a couple things. I'll give you a couple, a jump start on that list. For one thing, our salvation is great because it's a gift from God. Isn't that what Ephesians 2 tells us? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. In the gospel, we are saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, through God's Son, to God's glory. That is the greatest gift ever given. Now, of course, we can be so foolish and we act like children sometimes. You give a child a gift, and oftentimes the child's more preoccupied with the box than with the gift. That's what's happening with the Hebrew church. They're preoccupied with all the outside trappings, but not enjoying the gift. But it's such a great salvation because it's a gift. It's also a great salvation because it came at great cost. The only way for even one sinner to be saved let alone a multitude that no man can number like Revelation talks about, was for another to live and die in our place. Nothing else could suffice. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews is going to tell us, there is no forgiveness of sins. For Christ to save us, he had to bear the full, terrible weight of the punishment that we deserve. Salvation is free to us, but it was costly to Christ. Another thing that makes our salvation great is that it deals with great matters. It deals with matters of heaven and hell and of eternity. What's more important than that? What's weightier than that? Our salvation is also great because it gives us a great blessing. You know, if Christ, if all Christ had done is just wipe away our sins and bring us back to ground zero, back to even with God, that would have been astounding. But he did so much more. He set us free from the power of sin. He adopts us as his children. He brings us into the church and gives us a family. He transforms us so that we can live lives of useful service to him. And he secured an eternal inheritance for us. What a great salvation that we have. Any one of those things would be enough for us to praise God forever. But all of them, it is such a great salvation that we have. You know, if we really understood how great our salvation is, all other things on earth would grow strangely dim, wouldn't they? Hebrews is going to make that point again and again and again, and you're going to get tired of hearing it. But do you know why Hebrews is going to make that point again and again and again? Because we forget it again and again and again. And we take our eyes off of Christ, and we bring them down to this world, and we think that there are things in this world that can satisfy us as much as Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the Hebrews were doing. They, they were taking their eyes off of their invisible high priest, and they were looking to earthly high priests to help them. They were taking their eyes off of the invisible temple in heaven where Jesus Christ ever lives to intercede for us and they were fixing their eyes on this earthly temple. When we take our eyes off of our great salvation and place them onto earthly things, we are beginning to drift. So I want you to see this second thing, a drift into condemnation. 
the crux of what this pastor is saying here is pay careful attention to what you've heard because if you do not, you will drift away. You know, it's like the signs, the warning signs at the beach that say, beware strong current. You know, the signs are annoying if all you want to do is have a fun time at the beach, but they also might save your life. And that's what this pastor is warning them about here. Strong current. You'll drift. You'll drift away. I want you to think about drifting. There's really two kinds of drifting. One is the occasional drifting that all Christians from time to time experience in which our hearts may grow dull to the things of Christ, where, where we're just going through the motions. Oftentimes those are due to a preoccupation with the world or to a neglect of the means of grace or to unconfessed sin. But in the life of the believer, of a true believer, drifting is not the final state. Hebrews is going to teach us again and again the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So Hebrews 12 too, you probably know this verse that Jesus is the author, he began our faith, and the perfecter of our faith. This means that a true believer cannot be lost. We may drift for a time, but nothing can take us out of our Father's hand. Sometimes he'll restore us through discipline, but nothing can take us out of his hand. There's another kind of drifting, though, that we need to be aware of. This is the kind that will ultimately lead to falling away. Throughout this book, the author is, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, going to use warnings to preserve his people but also to make clear to those who are in the church but are not trusting in Christ, he wants them to hear this, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? See, there are going to be some in the church and there are going to be some in every church, this side of glory, who have all the outward trappings of Christianity yet are not believers. And so this passage, it lovingly but sternly warns us against drifting into condemnation. Well, that could never happen to me. I I prayed the sinner's prayer. I walked an aisle. I, I took a communicants class. Do you not realize many of the inhabitants of hell will say the exact same thing? The danger of drifting is you never know where you're going to end up. And so if you're really in Christ, drifting is going to bring you back. These warnings are going to bring you back. You're going to search your heart. You're going to repent and return. But if you're not and you hear the warnings of Scripture and it doesn't change your direction, then that's an indicator that you're not a true believer. Let me make an early point of application here. This is one of the things that church discipline is designed to do. And I know that, in part, Nathaniel Hawthorne and and the Scarlet Letter did a great job of convincing most of us that, that church discipline is a bad thing. But actually, church discipline is a biblical thing. And I want you to understand, in light of this text, what church discipline is designed to do. When someone is, is acting in, in great sin, 
And it's brought to their attention from Scripture using the pattern of Matthew 18. If they hear and repent, then they prove themselves to be truly in Christ. But if they see that the Scriptures confront their life and refuse to repent, they're proving themselves to be unbelievers. And so that's what we call excommunication. And I know that gets a very bad rap today, but all excommunication does is it says there is no reason to believe that this person is a believer because their life is in contradiction to what Scripture says. They've been confronted by Scripture and have refused to repent. This is serious stuff here. As believers, we need to be able to recognize drifting when we see it. Let me share with you a, a progression of drifting. This is how it tends to happen, and sadly, I've, I've seen this. I've seen it play out in, in churches. I've seen it play out in this church. Drifting starts by taking your eyes off of Christ. When verse 1 says, pay much closer attention, that's a really watered-down translation because our English just can't cover it. A more literal translation would be, we must be super abundantly watchful. A lot of you wake up and the first thing you do is check the stock market to see how your retirement accounts have been over the roller coaster of the last few months. You are paying super abundant attention to that. Hebrews is saying here, the thing to which you and I ought to be paying super abundant attention, the thing that ought to occupy our minds above all else is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the single most important thing. And so we'll come to Hebrews 12 too in a few months and it tells us, fix your eyes, glue them to Jesus Christ. Drifting starts when we take our eyes off of Christ. And of course, when we take our eyes off of Christ, we're inevitably going to place them on other things. And so the second phase of drifting or the second stage in the progression of drifting is fixing our eyes on the wrong things. Uh, The problem with these, these Hebrew believers is that they're thinking about all that they left to follow Christ And they're paying little attention to the sufficiency of Christ. They're not content in Christ. They feel like, I have Jesus, but I need more. And they're becoming concerned and even consumed with these earthly things that they've left behind. And they're even willing to leave the church to go back to the synagogue to try to come up with a syncretistic Judaism-Christianity mix. Now, I know that, uh, at least I suppose, nobody in this room is thinking about going back to Old Testament Judaism. So we need to bring it into our context. How often do you and I face the temptation of prioritizing other things above our walk with Christ and service to him? How often are we guilty of putting other things before our walk with Christ? Typically, all we have to do is look at how we spend our days. Most of us spend so much time with work and we spend so much time with social obligations and we spend so much time with leisure and we come to the end of the day and realize we have spent almost no time, maybe no time at all in prayer or in the word. I think one of the tangible ways to measure drift is through participation in the life of the church. It's certainly not a perfect litmus test. You can be 
uh, very present in church and still not know Jesus. But in our frenetic culture that's pulling us in so many different directions with an infinite list of demands on your very finite amount of time, church participation is a very good litmus test. A century or so ago, Christians worshipped morning and evening on the Lord's Day. That was normal practice in most Protestant churches. They were so committed to that that when the National Football League started talking about when to play their games, they said Sundays will never be an option because America is a Christian nation and we will never be able to pull the people out of church. As they got their foot in the door, Sundays became a day of worship or play or commerce or leisure. And so now by 2022, there are so many things vying for our attention on Sunday that so many folks are only going to make church a commitment if no bigger or better commitment comes up. You know, it's a major danger sign when corporate worship is less important than playing or going shopping. Look at the language of verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift. He's saying nobody's immune to this. Nobody is immune. All of us, myself included, feel the tug of the world, the flesh, and the devil on our hearts. That they create this strong rip current all around us. And if we're not careful, they will begin to carry us away. The pastor really isn't worried about his people waking up one day and saying, I don't love Jesus. He's concerned they're going to say, I love everything else so much that there is no room for Jesus in my life. Then as our hearts get set on those other things, a third stage of drifting happens, and that's neglecting our faith. The word for faith in verse 3 is amaleo, and it means to be of little concern or to outgrow something, that it doesn't fit anymore. Neglecting our salvation is the opposite of paying careful attention to it. Think of what happens when you neglect a garden. It grows weeds where fruit should be. And what happens when we neglect our salvation, when we neglect our walk with Christ, is that our life becomes full of weeds where fruit should be. We neglect our great salvation when we do not live lives in light of the gospel both the facts of the gospel and the commands of the gospel. Many of us love the grace we receive in the gospel, but we bristle when we hear the imperatives, the commands of what God has called us to do in response to his great salvation. That's neglecting the gospel itself. And then after this, in this downward slope of taking our eyes off Christ, placing them on other things, Neglecting the gospel, drifting finally involves departure from the faith. Now, it may not involve departing from church, but here's what departure from the faith looks like, an absence of spiritual vitality. No discernible presence of prayer life or devotional life. Departure from biblical doctrine, saying things like this, I like to think of God as... It always ends in a departure from biblical doctrine. It's also a departure from biblical morality. It doesn't just mean that we 
engage in biblical immorality, but it also can mean simply giving approval to those who do. Look over at Romans 1 for a moment. In Romans 1, Paul has, like a good lawyer, made his case for the depravity of man, how badly we need the gospel. And I'd encourage you this afternoon to read all the way through from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, but particularly let's look at verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, to celebrate or to give approval to what God condemns is a departure from biblical Christianity. And I know that's going to sound peculiar because our postmodern culture has said we can make Christianity mean whatever we want it to mean. No, you can't. Christianity is what God has intended it to mean, and he has laid it out on the pages of Scripture. Drifting from the truth will finally mean departing from the truth. And many of you have been grieving lately because you've watched as people you love appear to, uh, who appeared to be believers have now departed from biblical Christianity in order to keep up with the world. What does it mean if someone departs, if they drift outside of the bounds of biblical Christianity? They're not believers. Look at 1 John 1, uh, excuse me, 1 John 2. First John 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, they departed from the faith because they were not true believers. If they were true biblical believers, they would have stayed. They would have stayed in the faith. That's why Hebrews is going to give us this warning in verses 2 and 3. For since the message... uh, declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying the angels declared the law and the Old Testament is full of people who broke that law and they got punished for it. If the message of Christ is greater, then don't you think that those who who depart from the message of Christ, those who neglect the message of Christ, will also experience great judgment? How will they escape? Well, the Old Testament, that was all about law, wasn't it? But now we live in the New Testament age, and it's all about grace, right? Have you ever heard people say that? What has happened today is people have so misconstrued what grace is that they think that because Christ came, we can sin all we want, we can neglect the things of God, and still in the end, God will let us in. This passage is saying the exact opposite. If God punished people in the Old Testament for ignoring the law, how much more is he going to punish those who neglected the greater message of the gospel? 
Do you know who in Scripture spoke to the greatest depth about condemnation and hell? Isaiah, right? Jeremiah, right? One of those Old Testament prophets? Actually, it was Christ. Christ warned often about eternal punishment. He described it in multiple places as outer darkness. And and Sinclair Ferguson, one of my heroes, gave us this picture of a conversation. He says, imagine a conversation from outer darkness. Some soul who's there and says, how did I get here? He says, another voice says, me too. You're not the only one. How did I get here? I did nothing at all. I, I, I was in church. I heard the message, but I didn't do anything with it. I just drifted here. Hebrews is saying, what do you need to do to go to hell? The answer is not a thing. You'll drift there on your own. How shall you escape? Run to Christ. Turn to Christ. And this is good news because this may be some of you who have heard the gospel perhaps hundreds or thousands of times in your life, but it's never gone to your heart. It's gone in the ears. You can articulate it. But it's never created that heart fire in you. And so some in this room likely have lives that have no evidence of spiritual health or vitality. Some are up to our eyeballs in sin and addiction. Your pride is going to tell you there's no way of escape. That's the hardest part of ministering in the South is everybody's too proud to admit when they've drifted. Many are too proud to admit they have never trusted in Christ. But that's exactly the kind of person Christ came for. Jesus came for sinners who have lived in religious hypocrisy and stubborn sin for so long who see our need of a Savior and trust in Him. You cannot escape if you neglect so great a salvation, but if you'll come to Christ, then no matter what you have done, you will not be condemned because Christ took that condemnation. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we know our weakness. We know that we never desire to dishonor God or endanger our souls by drifting. There's a third thing that this text gives us, and that is a firm foundation. Verse 1 says, pay careful attention to what you've heard. In other words, to the word. And then the latter part of verse 3, he's showing us how reliable it is. He says, it was declared first by the Lord, talking about Christ, and then attested to by those who heard, while God, the Father, bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? You have the whole of the Trinity there. There was an Old Testament requirement that for any testimony to be accepted, it needed to be received on the witness of two or three eyewitnesses. And Hebrews is saying, oh, we've got three witnesses. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all who testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. Uh, B.B. Warfield says, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. God has stamped his approval on the scriptures as we have them in the Old and New Testament. How do we avoid spiritual drift then? The same way we do it when we're out in the boat, we hold fast to our anchor. Turn over just a couple pages to Hebrews 6, verse 19. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is talking about Christ, that he is the anchor of our souls. And so what you and I need to do in order to ensure we don't drift is to drop the anchor of our souls into the deep waters of the word of God. If you want to avoid spiritual drift, then pay careful attention to what you've heard, to what is written in the scriptures. Meditate upon them, study them, inwardly digest them. If you do not anchor yourself to God's word, you're going to be pulled all over the place. If we're not grounded in the word of God, the best we can do is try to go with the flow of our culture. Just think of the frenetic pace of the last few months in our cultures. Three months ago, everyone was concerned about COVID. Then came Ukraine. Last week, it was Uvalde and gun control. Now it's June and it's pride rainbows. It is changing literally day by day. The the ethos of our culture is constantly being shaped and reshaped. The current is strong. And if you and I are not absolutely anchored to Christ in his word, we're going to be sailing about, pulled by every wind of doctrine. That's the the repeated point throughout Hebrews. Don't become lazy about the Bible. Don't become lazy about learning the basics of the faith. Don't become lazy about gathering in corporate worship. Don't let these things slide. Because if you do, you will drift away. Do you long to be anchored to Christ's great salvation rather than neglecting it unto condemnation? then be sure that your life is anchored to the word of Christ. How do we apply this text? First, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Those are the words of Romans 12 too. Every day, the world is catechizing you. The world is training and shaping you. And you each day are either being conformed more and more to the pattern of this world or you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is no spiritual neutrality. You are moving in one direction or another. You and I need to wake up consciously moving in the direction of God's word. Second, we need to be clear that the word of God gives us the will of God. I've shared this before, but Abraham Lincoln asked an audience how many legs a dog has if you count the tail as a leg. And several people answered five. And Lincoln said, no, the answer's four. The fact that you called the tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. In our postmodern culture that says truth is a malleable thing that we can shape and reshape, define and redefine until it meets our preferences, we need to be willing to say the word of God alone gives us the will of God. The word of God alone can tell us right from wrong. The word of God alone can tell us good from evil. And, and so, beloved, I This is going to be increasingly hard in our culture because the winds of our culture are going to pick up. Some of you have already given me a hard time about there being a tropical storm Alex down in Florida. We are entering into a hurricane, and if we are not anchored 
with the sure and certain hope that the Word of God is the will of God, we will drift all over the place. Never be embarrassed by what Scripture teaches. The trends of our culture will come and go, but the Word of God will endure forever. Third, we ought to frequently and diligently examine our own hearts to be sure that we have really heard, to be sure that we are not drifting. I fear that there are many in the evangelical church and some in this room possibly who would say, that could never happen to me. Yet if they really took inventory of their life, they would see that apart from an hour on Sunday, there is nothing distinctly Christian about them. We ought to, to regularly just make sure that our trust is truly in the Lord Jesus, that it's not in some decision we made years ago or some action we took, but that truly, day by day, we are trusting in Christ. The Lord's Supper gives us a great opportunity to do that. We partake of the Lord's Supper the first Sunday morning of every month, the third Sunday evening of every month, and this is a great time to step back and say, does my life evidence that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Or have I grown complacent? Am I drifting? Have I taken my eyes off Christ and being pulled in the direction of this world? Has has sin grabbed hold of my heart? The Lord's Supper gives us opportunity to do so, to take inventory and to be sure that we truly belong to Jesus for how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray together. God in heaven, we need this word because we are, frankly, God, we are very good at critiquing others, but rarely do we inspect ourselves. Rarely are we attentive to our own lives, asking the question, have I paid careful attention, or am I neglecting so great a salvation? Lord God, we ask that you would Give us the humility to inspect our lives, to see that we're truly truly clinging to Christ, to be aware of drifting and that that progression, that slide into drifting, and to, to turn from it when we catch it in our lives. Lord, help us to, <clears throat> to be honest about our own faith, and when we find weakness when we find error in it to run to Christ.